If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 478. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and like my Facebook page. Subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts at Brian McClanahan or at my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, free audiobook. You get emails from me. They're info mails, so they're fun to read. Plus, you get coupons oftentimes from McClanahan Academy or other things. You might get a link to my books, one of my books, which, of course, The Jeffersonian Tradition is my latest. I'll be talking about that a little bit today, or at least kind of an offshoot of that. Um, also, Southern Scribblings, which came out last year, and then I have a number of other books, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, The Pig to the Founding Fathers, The Pig to Real American Heroes, Forgotten Conservatives in American History, The Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution. So much good stuff that you're going to want that. Also, click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get a book plate if you want my autograph on one of my books. Great ways to support the show. Also, Best way, share it around on social media, get people listening to the program, let them uh, think locally and act locally. We've had a history week this week, though. I'm going to wrap it up this week. I really enjoyed this week. Now, again, if you want to get me five times a week, you can listen to the Abbeville Institute podcast, which comes out typically on Friday if you um, uh, or follow it on SoundCloud. Now, if you go and want it on YouTube, it's also out on Friday typically. Uh, on the app, it's out on Saturdays. But uh, that's five days a week for, for me. But go to abbevilleinstitute.org and you can pick that up. Um, but I want to talk about a topic that actually, going back to National Review this week, and it's about populism. Now, the Jeffersonian tradition is at the core of American populism. And when I went to South Carolina in, in, for graduate school, I wanted to, to talk about this a little bit when I was there. I wanted to do some intellectual history in this way. And I was ex explicitly told by my advisor, you've got a lot of work to do in thinking about this. And he handed me an essay that he wrote in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, on the subject of populism. And uh, one of the papers you know, I wrote early in graduate school is on John Taylor of Caroline. And that paper actually turned into essentially the chapter on John Taylor in my Pig to the Founding Fathers. And it always makes me laugh when people say that the Jeffersonians weren't conservative and that Hamiltonians were conservative because it's, the, it's just preposterous. It's actually the complete opposite. What, particularly when you look at the things that Taylor was talking about or John Randolph of Roanoke was talking about, and later Calhoun, even though Calhoun and Randolph didn't see eye to eye, Calhoun wasn't considered to be a purist, but certainly a lot of the Jeffersonians in Virginia and then were, and then you look at you know Thomas Ritchie, and you look at the Richmond Junto, and all the things they were doing. William Brockenbaugh and some, some of these people were so important 
and this idea of American conservatism. And yes, they may not have had all the elements you would say of, say, a, a European conservatism, uh, particularly when it comes down to religion. It's the one area that many of them were a little bit faulty on. Though, when you look at the Tuckers, I mean, certainly they were very religious people. Um, but regardless, they believed in this local agrarian economy, which fit right in with the English country estate. Now, you can say that's Whiggish, that's not conservative, that's not, that's not court. It's not court conservatism. But uh, there's a reason why Russell Kirk didn't include Alexander Hamilton or Abraham Lincoln in the conservative mind, yet he included uh, John Randolph and John C. Calhoun because both were conservative, whereas Hamilton and Lincoln were not conservative in any way. And if you start lumping them in as that, which all the modern neoconservative nationalists do, they're making a huge mistake. So I want to talk about this idea of populism today because the National Review published an article on July 9th by Sean Michael Pigeon entitled William Jennings Bryan Revisited. Uh, this piqued my interest for this reason because I wrote a chapter in Forgotten Conservatives in American History in 2012 on C.A. Lindbergh which essentially took some of the same things. Now, C.A. Lindbergh was considered to be a socialist Republican. Okay. Now, C.A. Lindbergh, though, if you look at, his, at what he was doing, he was, first of all, anti-imperialism, uh, and he was anti-central banking. He took Jeffersonian positions on two of the things that were at the core of this early spirit of 76, which was America first, essentially. I mean, that's what we would call it. That's what his son, Charles Lindbergh, would later be involved in. And this idea of opposition to the corporate welfare state, the centralized corporate welfare state. And when you look at the, look at the populists, and this piece by, by Pigeon confuses populism and progressivism quite a bit. But when you look at the populists of the late 19th century, the 1880s and the 1890s, they were simply Jeffersonians. But what had happened was interesting. During the war, and even into the 1850s, when you start looking at the rise of populism in America, during that period of time, Western or Midwestern, Northern Western and Midwestern farmers were influenced into the Republican Party because of their opposition to the extension of slavery in the Western territories. They were all racists. They just didn't want blacks in the territories, whether free or slave. And the northern position of opposing slavery extension appealed to them because that left this territory open for them to be farmers and to enjoy the benefits of uh, this Western expansion. They could have it free from uh, from low-wage competition, which was the whole point. It wasn't about really being anti-slavery in principle. It was about being anti-black. Right? They just didn't want black Americans there. So they formed this uneasy coalition with northern industrialists who also saw it as a great way to expand their political power. And by the 1880s and 90s, they realized they've cut a really bad deal. They got of course, some internal improvements legislation. They got homestead legislation. But they also are now saddled down with protective tariffs and central banking. 
and things that they really didn't want, a finance capitalist system that does not work for them. Namely because of the gold standard in their mind. and Because a lot of these people were debtors, a little inflation worked to their benefit. And so having silver in circulation also helped devalue the dollar a little bit, which made it easier to borrow and, of course, also pay back if you can get more money. If you borrowed $1,000 and you can get you can increase your earnings uh, every year because of a little bit of inflation, well, that $1,000 doesn't go up. But, of course, they peg interest rates to inflation. So, I mean, it really... But the idea was that you could pay this back easier. It was easier to do, right? So um, that was part of it. But you did have the anti-inflationists, people like Grover Cleveland and others. I mean, in some ways you can say they're also Jeffersonians because they're, they're advocating a position that's very much in line with the sound money people on the Jeffersonian side. But that's a whole other topic. So you get this idea of, of populism and William Jennings Bryan. And Bryan is an interesting case. Now, Bryan was certainly anti-imperialism. He resigned as Secretary of State because Wilson was dragging the United States into World War I. Bryan was also a devout Christian, and the Cross of Gold speech, because of the religious imagery, appealed to farmers in the Midwest and the South because it was something they could relate to, a farmer being nailed to a cross of gold. He had that Christian imagery, and Brian was certainly an evangelical Christian, made a name for himself in the, uh, in the Scopes trial. Um, of course, you know that was a disaster politically for Brian, but to, or I should say image-wise. And, of course, he dies very quickly. I mean, he's just heartbroken over it, essentially has, has a heart attack. But this was an important part of populism, this rural-based, traditional-based belief in the value of human work and dignity, uh, the, the value of a dollar, um, what that means, getting, getting value for your work, land, being rooted to something, opposition to corporate welfare, central banking, also going out and getting blown to bits for democracy, whatever that means. It's very Jeffersonian, local, agrarian way of life. And so it reminded me of this piece that I've read from Clyde Wilson back in the 90s entitled Up at the Forks of the Creek in Search of American Populism. Now, I want to read that because um, we are talking about populism more because of Donald Trump. And in fact, I want to read the last paragraph of this piece by uh, at National Review by Pigeon. And he says this, William Jennings Bryan was a transformational leader who has been underappreciated by historians and political strategists. His life and career can also help frame our current political moment. If history is a guide, Trump will not only will not fully actualize his populist movement. Instead, his skills may be best used to bolster a Wilsonian technocrat who can effectively navigate legislative coalitions. Brian was humble enough to step away from party politics and support a former adversary such as Wilson. It remains to be seen whether Trump willingly enters this, that same stage of his political career. Nevertheless, it may be the best way forward for the Republican Party and ultimately for him too. Now, what's interesting is that essentially what, what Pigeon is doing here is advocating a, the rise of progressivism and the use of the state and Wilson using the state to influence progressivism. But see, 
populism wasn't ever that. Now, eventually the populists would use the government. I was going to get, use the government to their advantage because it was foisted on them. And so they were going to use it to hurt the people that were actually hurting them, which was, they thought, big business. So they're going to pass income taxes and lower tariffs and going to do things to try to uh, regulate banking. This was all the Wilsonian agenda, the Glass-Steagall Act, the Underwood Tariff, the Clayton uh, Antitrust Act. All of that stuff came out of the South. It's all named after Southerners, right? So the whole idea was to get back at Northern dominated interests by using the power of the general government that they established to do that very thing. So I want to read this piece by Clyde Wilson, though, up at the Forks of the Creek. Um, It's really good, and I think it gets to the heart of what populism is. And in fact, the editor's note here, with the rise of populism around the world, we should revisit the history and origins of American populism. So Wilson says, in populism, we are confronted with a term that raises so many different connotations in different minds that we may well wonder if the term is usable at all. It is not quite as bad in this respect as democracy, a word so abused that no honest thinker employs it anymore. Every regime in the world has been declared democratic, the exception of the Vatican and the Sultanate of Muscat. Populism implies the people. That it is, in most quarters, a favorable sign or symbol, a sought-after asset in the public forum. Its fate is similar to that of liberalism, a favorable term that has come in, in the 20th century to cover a very different set of phenomena than it did in the 19th, to the point that it is, it is, its use can be extremely mis- misleading. A few years on the hustings can destroy any political label. Consider the straightforward old Anglo-Saxon term, Whig. Even as clearest point of meaning, Edmund Burke had to appeal had to appeal from the old Whigs to the new, and it meant something different in America than it did in England, and something different in the 18th century than it came to mean in the 19th century America. Populism has suffered suffered similar abuse, and my paper will, in large part, be an extended essay in definition and precise description. I am a historian, not a political theorist, and I am an Americanist. I do not profess to know enough about Europe to know which movements are populist. For instance, I didn't have the slightest idea whether in the Spanish Civil War one side had populist tendencies and the other did not, or whether both or neither did. Just possibly my freedom from European assumptions and theoretical baggage will be an asset here in focusing on what American populism is or has been. This is important to define this, I think, and he's getting into it. My impression of European history is that since the 17th century, there's been a struggle between various interests and ideologies to control the central state, and that the central state has been a given. But as I understand American populism from its beginnings to the present moment is an expression of hostility to state power and those who exercise it to or seek to exercise it. It is no, it is no surprise then that, the most, that most populists have looked to Thomas Jefferson, the great original American critic of consolidated power, as their patron saint, and that the history of, the, of true populism is closely connected to the concept of the American Constitution as a restraint on power rather than a grant of power. Populists regard state power as always corrupt and corrupting, which is an inheritance, I believe, of the English country ideology or opposition value system which the Americans absorbed deeply in the colonial period and which underlay the American war for independence. So he's pointing this back to the spirit of principles of 76. In the last podcast, I talked about this. How are we going to think about 1776? Well, right here. This is it. A restraint on power. That's how Americans should think about 
the 250th anniversary of the American War for Independence. A restraint on power. A restraint on the state. And the importance of traditional liberties. Populism in the strictest historical sense refers to the People's Party, which flourished in the later 19th century in certain regions of the American Union. Which brings us to another point of my definition of populism. It has always been in this country a regional, not a class phenomenon. I take this idea, as well as my title, Up at the Forks of the Creek, from an early essay of the late Emmy Bradford. The People's Party is often spoken of as a Midwestern phenomenon. Midwestern is actually a vague term. Heartland is a little better, perhaps. But populism was not a phenomenon of the heartland. It was a phenomenon of the far western fringes of the heartland, and equally or more so of the rural south. And also of the mining regions of the far west, which gave it the peculiar counterproductive tangent of the free silver movement. There were no populists in Ohio, and they were a minority in Iowa. In the heartland, one has to go west of the Mississippi to find a populist, even all the way to the Missouri to find many. And in the South, contrary to what left historians have assumed or claimed, we do not find populists in the impoverished poor white regions. We find them chiefly in the upcountry plantation belt, among the small planters and later yeomanry, the same regions exactly that had been most in favor of secession in 1861. The Georgia populist leader Tom Watson was tutored in politics by the Confederate statesman Robert Toombs and Alexander Stevens. I called a witness Leonidas Lafayette Polk of North Carolina, who was national president of the Farmers' Alliance and was thought by many to be the frontrunner for the populist presidential nomination in 1892 when he died suddenly. In earlier life, Polk had been sergeant major of the 26th North Carolina Regiment, Confederate States Army, famous for his two charges at Gettysburg. In both cases, he had the same enemy. And it may be relevant to add that Senator Jesse Helms was born and raised in the country directly adjacent to the one from which Polk came. He says he had the same enemy, the same financial political enemy at Gettysburg as he did in 1892 when he died, which was the Northeastern Industrial Capitalist Group. As Robert McMath has shown in his fine recent book, American Populism, A Social History, the People's Party flourished chiefly in market agricultural regions of grain, cotton, tobacco, which were undergoing severe economic and social dislocation, and which were under, undergoing enough modernization to bring forth forms of organization that had not been seen among American agriculturalists before. The greatest barrier to a proper understanding of American populism lies in the confusion that has been spared, wittingly and unwittingly, by liberal historians. Those who have professed to like populism have been guilty of more distortion than those who dislike it. The liberal establishment is always in search of respectable ancestors. This is why Arthur Schlesinger and Robert Remini have written their historical fantasies about Jacksonian democracy, portraying it as something that it clearly was not in order to make, to make precedence for New Deal liberalism. Historical interpretation very often, of course, has to do with the manipulation of symbols for their influence on present concerns. Well, this is the case even with 1776, it's the case with 1619, it's the case with all of this. This is what we, a usable past, right? Those who dislike Jacksonian democracy or populism have actually pictured it more accurately, if critically, than those who have claimed to favor it. A New York intellectual like Richard Hofstetter, Hofstetter allowing for his value system, was more honest in picturing the populace as rural bigots than others have been in treating them as forerunners of various left movements of later times. Of course, one man's rural bigot is another man's chosen of God. The pre-Hofstetter generation of liberal historians wrote about populism were progressives and largely small-town Midwesterners, though not from the populist regions. They saw populism as a historical phenomenon of progressivism, 
which followed closely on its heels as part of the same liberalizing reformist area of American history. This confusion still largely reigns. Were not both of these movements, reactions to political corruption, poverty, and the oppressions of capital, did not both seek to restore democracy to the people and correct abuses of the Gilded Age, did not progressivism rise to join the force, join the force just as populism was declining? In order to understand the conflicts and tendencies in American society from that time to the present, I think we need to clearly grasp the differences between populism and progressivism. So here he's going to define the two, and I think this is these are very good definitions, these next three paragraphs. We need to think about that as we start calling Trump a populist or these people populist. We need to think about these things. Populism was weighed weighted toward the South and West, a product of the culturally most conservative parts of American society. It was backward-looking, even reactionary, like most normal societies throughout history. New forces had brought new conditions which seemed unsettling and unjust, according to old dispensations. Populism was and is a defensive attempt to correct these new forces. Progressivism was weighted toward the North and East. It was a phenomenon of the most educated, modern parts of American society, a philosophy of the urban professional. Far from rejecting modernism, progressives embraced it as an opportunity. Its evils could be brought under control by progressives, by planning, expertise, organization. Such planning, of course, translated into wealth and power for the progressives, what became the liberal establishment. The long-term result has been an endless series of expense, unproductive social plans like the war on poverty, expensive and unproductive except to their managers. Morality has almost gone to be to be defined as holding the proper attitude toward progressive programs, and it is bad form to point out the interestedness of their proponents. Populism is not an agenda, but a reluctant impulse of self-defense. Seldom have real populist leaders sought to make themselves into a new elite. What they have sought to do is to protect their people from oppressive officials. This certainly characterizes the American Revolution and the history of political assertion that preceded it. It characterizes the much-discussed phenomenon of the Christian right currently. According to alarmed liberals, bigoted fundamentalists are out to construct a police state and break down bedroom doors to impose a morality of more enlightened thinkers. But of course, what has actually happened is that millions of decent, sincere, open, often simple Christians have been provoked into action by militant obscenity, blasphemy, and atheism, invading the public sphere and officially sanctioned by the ruling elite. They are quite right. Separation of church and state in American tradition has, meant, has not meant banishing of all Christian values to the closet. All that it is really desired is to restore the status quo ante. So, I mean, let me back up here. Populism was about protecting people from outside forces. Progressivism was embracing modernity. And I think that is a key to understanding. The populists were not, they're not interested in modernity. They're not moderns in the way that the progressives are. And, of course, you're looking at regionals, regional differences in these things. And I remember when I was doing, going through my comps, this question was asked of me. What's the difference between the two? And I think this is a nice summary of it. Where the People's Party put forward specific measures that were corrective, the direct election of senators, cooperatives, free silver, regulation of railroads and banks in the interests of producers and consumers, income tax on great wealth, they were not forwarding a socialist society but reacting to abuses of state capitalism. The Republican Party had not and never had favored an open economy. By free enterprise, it meant private ownership with government support and subsidy. This is the only kind of free enterprise the Republican Party has ever favored. And by charges of socialism levelly at the populace, Republicans meant government acknowledgement of the complaints of agriculture and labor, which is the only kind of socialism the Republican Party has ever opposed. To the extent populism was ideological, it rested upon, not upon an agenda of the future, but upon a vision of, of a past golden Jeffersonian age 
of widespread private property and limited government. It was simply old-fashioned American republicanism. Now, it may be that this kind of thinking is merely nostalgic and sentimental and idealistic, as some of my socialist friends think and tell me. Sin we always have with us, and the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. But I do not think it is only nostalgic to believe that there was a time when America had more, a more honorable class of leaders and a higher sense of public ethics than we do now. John Taylor of Caroline formulated the philosophy. It's not simply the, an idealization of agriculture, though that was part of it. And what is wrong with idealizing in favor of a healthier and more independent life for the mass of citizens? Taylor embodied the persistent and recurrent themes of American populism, as I define it. He represented both a conservative allegiance to local community and inherited ways and a radical popular suspicion of capitalism, progress, government manipulations, and routine log rolling. In many ways, Taylor was a more authentic and representative Jeffersonian than Jefferson himself. Taylor's opposition to federal power, judicial oligarchy, paper money, stock jobbing, taxation, and expenditure was based upon the belief, the essence of populism and the country ideology, that the world is divided between producers and parasites. The producers are decent folk or whatever economic class who labor for their daily bread and produce everything of real economic and moral value in society. They are subject in the nature of the world to endless depredations by people whose main occupation is manipulating the government for artificial advantages for themselves. The problem of the st- for the statesmen was that these manipulators are eternal and come in many guises. They, are always, they always appear plausible and public-spirited, whether it is Alexander Hamilton seeking national prosperity or the great society bureaucracy seeking to end poverty. We have here the, the essence of populism. Taylor defines it, its instincts and its political program. It is still a deeply embedded folk attitude among the American people. In the simplest terms, populism is the community defending itself against oppressive or inadequate agents of the state. People here is not a Marxist or even a particularly democratic term. It is a distinction between the body of the community and the wielders of state power and their beneficiaries. Now, this is important. This is folk. I mean, it's the folk tales. It's the folk way of life. It is the essence of what America was built on. Self-determination, self-government, and resistance to an overarching centralized power that has at the top those who are wielding it for nefarious reasons or for self-gain. And understanding the distinction between populism and progressivism, consider the difference between two third-party presidential candidates of recent history. George Wallace came from the Black Belt of Alabama, lived, laid the evils of American society personally at the doors of the establishment, and was supported by small-town people, disaffected workers, and small businessmen. John Anderson came from the most rock-rib Republican and abolitionist districts of Illinois, and was supported by well-educated upper-middle-class people who thought American problems were to be solved by turning over power to such clear-minded and honorably motivated persons as themselves. George Wallace is a populist. John Anderson is a progressive. To bring it even closer to the present day, the campaign of 1992, who was a populist. Jerry Brown certainly enunciated certain populist themes, yet in the final analysis, it seems to me, he and his supporters are homeless progressives who think if they get in power, they can do better. That is, These social problems are solvable by the right sentiments and policies. Pat Buchanan also enunciated even more clearly certain populist themes, which were successful as far as they went, but he suffered from a residual identification with the Republican Party establishment, which he was not willing to break, and thus fell short of thoroughgoing populism. And what of Ross Perot? Perot, I suggested, articulated various confused and undigested elements of both populism and progressivism. On the one hand, national direct referendum. On the other, technology and management. Thus, it was never clear whether he wanted to be a populist or a progressive. 
This, this mess perhaps explains why we all found Perot in the end somehow incomplete and unsatisfactory, even those of us who are disposed to be sympathetic. The instincts of populism are powerful enough in the American people still for there to have evolved in the part of the government vested interests in the court party in terms of country ideology, two distinct types of pseudo-populism to gall the people. And he gets into um, Lincoln and Henry Clay here, which I find fascinating. He says, in the election of 1840, the Whig campaign managers of William Henry Harrison put on a very populistic campaign with torchlight parades, log cabins, coonskin hats, Tippecanoe and Tyler II, and no platform. Was this populism? No, merely demagoguery. Here began the real vulgarization and degradation of the American political process, which has proceeded apace ever since. Here on the part of conservative politicians, whose main objective to recharter the National Bank was hardly mentioned in the election. And here, here and not contrary to most historians in the election of 1828 of the aristocratic Andrew Jackson. In the election of 1860, Abraham Lincoln, an ex-Whig and corporation lawyer, fronting for manufacturing and banking interest campaigns insofar as his ambitious and oracle oracular sent statements can be made to cohere against an imaginary slave power of the South that was conspiring to enslave the northern working man. He also went on the slogan, Vote Yourself a Farm, referring to the contemplated Homestead Act. Was this populism? No, just demagoguery. Even the museum specimen progressive conservative Herbert Hoover promised a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. And a presidential candidate named Bush from a notorious investment banking family was compelled to blather on insincerely about no new taxes and family values. The other common form of pseudo-populism practice is that of modern bureaucratic liberalism, which seems to address the concerns of the people but really uses them as an opportunity to push another agenda. The New Deal certainly drew much of its support from populist impulses, but it became the expression of the great opportunist Franklin D. Roosevelt and his brain trusters of welfare state and managerial state elites. Consider what happened to the, current, to the crime bill in the last session of Congress. People clearly think criminals are a problem and they should be locked up faster, more often, and more surely and longer. In Clintonian pseudo-populism, this was subtly transferred into crime being a problem. Therefore, we need to spend more money on playgrounds in the inner city to keep the boys from going astray. None of this, of course, represents any real populism. Leaders who actually believe this, that us yahoos should get what we want offer a real threat to the establishment. They have to be re- relegated to the fringe, blitzed by the media, in the case of Huey Long and George Wallace shot. American history was, for a long time, written from the New England viewpoint, and many tend to think of localism and self-government populism in terms of the New England town meeting. This, too, leads us astray. The parts of the heartland settled by New Englanders were least likely to support the People's Party, as I suggested earlier on in discussing its sources. The New England town meeting did involve direct democracy, but within a very limited and closed society. It was not populist. It was always infused with a sense of religious communalism and collectivism and purposefulness in terms of social regimentation and improvement. In New England, only when you got beyond the core, up into the wilds of New Hampshire, did you find any real populism. At any rate, New England died for all practical purposes a long time ago and offers no model for modern America. This is true. I mean, take a break. New England did have some of this stuff, and I think Clyde Wilson points this out. It wasn't real populism. It was tied to the church. But where do you find real populism? In fact, its inheritance offers the greatest obstacle to populism. That overwhelming impulse for respectability and conformity, which Tocqueville saw as a characteristic of Americans. He looked mostly at New England and New England-influenced areas. Populism is not respectable. The Bryans, the Wallaces, the Huey Longs are not middle-class respectable. 
This is the largest single limitation on their success, the best weapon of the vested interest in putting down genuine populism. This is why innumerable beleaguered Midwestern farmers could not bring themselves to abandon the respectable Republican McKinley for the wild man Bryan in 1896. McKinley proved far more popular, if not more populist, than Bryan. One of the unnoticed aspects of George Wallace's campaigns was an attack on the immensely wealthy foundations. The suspicion of great wealth and unevenly distributed wealth is a normal and natural sentiment. Does not relate to socialism or to enmity in private property, but simply the ancient concept, conception that widely distributed property makes for the health and freedom of society. The foundations like Ford, Rockefeller, or Carnegie, as Wallace pointed out, enable great fortunes to escape taxes and use their wealth to inordinately influence public policy against the wishes of the people. From the point of view of democratic philosophy, this position is in, unfaultable, and it will make a great platform plank for a future populist leader if one should appear. The liberals who picture themselves as radical critics of privilege have always gotten along very comfortably with great wealth and made use of it. Great wealth is the initial stage of the concentration of power as, as an essential means for the manipulation of society by safe reforms, those reforms that enhance the state and its guardians. Thus, a pseudo-populist Clinton appointed a Wall Street operator as his chief economic advisor. He says, I do not want to downplay the, downplay the importance of ideology. The structure of ideas in people's heads, usually inherited concept is Disease, in disease ages like our own, when ideologies are taken up and put off like fashions, control the perceptions of events. The country ideology taught Americans to fear government. The court party is potentially oppressive. This was populism, as I see it. The Americans were not a revolting proletariat seeking to reinvent society, but the people of a region of the British Empire seeking to defend themselves. Not until the 19th century do we get thinkers who gave us an abstract European view of the Declaration as a revolutionary program. This can only be done by filtering the Declaration a historically back and forth through the French Revolution and German transcendentalism. A philosophy which becomes as much a threat to the self-government and good sense of communities as is the modern liberal regime, as what was overthrown. He says, our times are remote from these assertions of popular power, and he's talking about Che's rebellion and other things, of course, but it seems to me we need to recognize them to understand the populist instincts of the American people. Such assertions of regional popular power against bad government continued into the new union. He says, consider the Whiskey Rebellion. And he gives you an actual, gives you a nice analysis of the Whiskey Rebellion, which I think was a populist tax revolt. He says it was the greatest populist triumph in American history, though it was subsequently reinterpreted to make the government oppressors look good. Whether this could happen now, given the federal establishment's near monopoly of heavy firepower, remains to be seen. There are some similarities, but a much more sinister scenario to reach to the recent government massacre of women and children in Waco. Suppose the authorities of Texas had declined to go along with the federal invasion. Suppose the citizens to be suppressed had been more numerous or less odd. Would there have been a different outcome? And the court proceedings, the judge was clearly partisan, as in the Whiskey Rebellion, yet the juries released many of the defendants. Will American populism have to take some of such course in the future against entrenched and recalcitrant power that controls the courts? the communication media, and the police? Will the holders of power and privilege yield to persuasion and sentiment in political dialogue? Populism, as I have defined it, is still deeply ingrained in the American character, though it grows more diluted perhaps with each passing decade. It is always faced with John Taylor's dilemma, which means its successes will always be temporary and limited. If one bad agenda and establishment are defeated, there will always be others waiting plausibly in the wings to, to manipulate the state. This is the eternal dilemma of popular government, such a dilemma is, of course, infinitely preferable to those presented by any other kind of government. To be successful, populism does not need the established respectable leadership of a national political party. 
It needs wild men like Pat Buchanan who are ready to kick over the traces and call a spade a spade. It needs the support and assertion of at least some states and some state authorities. The states are what we have gotten the best instrument we have for checking federal power. It will take overwhelming populist sentiment, which is possible in the West and possible, though less so, in the South, to begin to counter federal oppressions. So, I mean, this last part of it, I think, is important because if you look at this piece on Brian by Pigeon, he's saying what we need is Trump to work with the Republican Party. And Clyde is saying, Clyde Wilson is saying, no, we need people outside of that and we need decentralization to work. This is where Think Locally, Act Locally works into this and why at the core, that's actually a populist agenda. What I talk about is more populist, it's more Jeffersonian, John Taylor than anything. And it's not ideological in what kind of system needs to be there. It needs to be the system that best reflects the people of that community. That's the core of populism. It's resistance to innovation coming from the outside. That's, that's the essence of it. And when you do that, when you get rid of the planners and the managerial class and all this other kind of stuff, that creates a much more reflective government on what it means to be a citizen in America. Okay. So, hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. Until next week, unless you listen to the Abbey uh, Institute, unless you get that week in review, I'll see you next week. See you then.